0: Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I'm going to reread the scripture just to set it up again. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. It is only in the Gospel of John that this foot-washing incident is recorded. The reason I mention that is you would think if there was only one Gospel for it to be put into, it would have been the Gospel of Mark. Why? Why? Because the gospel of Mark is the gospel in which Jesus is pictured as a servant most of all. The gospel of Matthew is written to present Christ as the king. The gospel of Luke presents him as the son of man, as a man in his essential humanity. The gospel of John presents him as the son of God, that is, in his deity, and there you find his greatest claims of deity. But it is in Mark's gospel that you would expect that this story Would best fit into. But the Holy Spirit reserves the right of taking this account and putting Jesus in the position as a slave for the Gospel of John, which presents Jesus as the great God man. That is, he is divine, all God and all man at the same time. So that when we see him take the position of a slave who is also the creator of the entire universe. So that when we read this passage, it would leave us humbled. Look at verse 3 with me. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. Here in verse 3, we are told three things about Jesus' state of mind as he performed this action. First, he knew that God had given all things unto his hands. This speaks of Christ's authority. Second, he knew that he had came from God. This speaks of his divine origin. Third, he knew that even then he was on the verge of returning back to God. This speaks of his future glory. Just as Jesus rose from the Last Supper, he rose in eternity past from the banquet that he had enjoyed with the Father and the Spirit continually to willingly take upon himself the form of a man. Now make no mistake about it. It wasn't that a committee of three, the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, voted who would go, and Jesus lost two to one. This wasn't a celestial version of rock, paper, scissors. No, in the council of eternity past, the son said, I choose to leave the intimacy of this heavenly banquet to invade the time-space continuum in order that I may redeem mankind. Now, Jesus is thinking about his mission, and there are two parts to it. First of all, he comes down. Just as he leaves the place of honor at the table and sets aside his normal garments, In the same way, the Bible tells us that though he was God, though he was the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, though he was the God that is so great that heaven and the highest heaven can't even contain him, the God to whom the entire universe is nothing more than a piece of belly button lint, that great God came down and became a human being. We sing about it each Christmas when we sing, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. We are told in verse 4 that he laid aside his garments. Just as Jesus laid aside his earthly garments, Philippians 2 says he laid aside the garments of his glory to come and dwell among us. Just as Jesus wrapped himself in a towel, so he wrapped his divinity in human flesh. He was still God, totally God, always God, yet wrapped in the towel of our humanity. On this remarkable occasion, Jesus, Jesus perfectly staged a portrayal of his whole life from birth to death to resurrection. It was a dramatization of Philippians 2.5. Where we read these words. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Now, we can easily follow the meaning of the parable by comparing the verses in Philippians that I just mentioned with the events that John records this morning. First, John tells us that Jesus rose from supper. This had already been done in a greater way when he rose from his throne of glory prior to coming into this world. Second, he laid aside his garments. Paul in Philippians says that when he came into the world, he laid aside the glory that was rightfully his, so that he could appear as a true man and not blind us with his celestial glory as we looked upon him. Next, he took a towel and girded himself. This was a garb of a servant, a role that Paul says he took upon himself. And finally, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Just as in a few short hours, he was to pour out his blood for the washing away of human sin by his atonement. Now, to see the end of that parable, we only have to skip ahead to verse 12. For there we read, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. In the same way, right now, Christ is highly exalted back to his rightful place. Or again, as the author of Hebrews writes, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Verse 5, please. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Five days later, this one who had had his feet anointed with a spikenard of Mary washes the dirt off the feet of his own disciples. He did this before sharing with him a powerful, penetrating teaching known as the upper room discourse. You know, that's always the way it is with the Lord. Before he teaches, he touches. What he did here in John 13 is get, he gets down on his hands and knees and begins to wash their feet. Now we know that washing someone's feet in that environment was something that only slaves were required to do. And even in many municipalities it was even illegal to make a slave do it. It was so disgusting and low and servile. Yet Jesus Christ takes the position of sort of a slave below slaves. I really have no good crossover for washing feet. In our day it's kind of a just a a little weird to us to think about but just to give us some kind of background about washing feet think about public restrooms rest stops along the interstate public restrooms at a beach public restrooms really anywhere that you go if public restrooms are not cleaned it becomes a disaster for humanity Even if you don't like the idea of public restrooms, every once in a while you sort of need one. So it's really necessary that these things get cleaned. But it's not necessarily a thing that many people really want to do. Now, in the ancient world, washing feet was analogous to public restrooms. It was necessary, but it was also very nasty. How come? Well, number one closed toes shoes didn't exist. And number two, the garbage disposal and the sewage disposal systems also didn't exist. Number three, populations were incredibly dense. And number four, everybody basically walked everywhere that they went. Now, I could list a few other things, but I don't want to ruin Cracker Barrel for you this morning. But the sum total of all that is feet were nasty, Feet were absolutely repulsive, and unless feet were washed, you can't be in the same room with some other people. Now, with that said, the one person in the room who shouldn't have had to do it was Jesus. First of all, he was the rabbi. There is no evidence anywhere in ancient literature of a rabbi stooping to wash the feet of his disciples. But even more so, just from a purely human perspective, Jesus was the neediest person in that room. He was just hours away from a cruel and lonely death. If anyone that evening needed to be served and loved, it was Jesus. Now, foot washing was a menial job, but it had to be done. It was especially important in a situation where people sat on the floor with their dusty, fragrant feet in plain view. Everyone around the table knew that it had to be done, but no one wanted to do it because the task fell to the lowliest person in that room. In fact, in Luke's account about the Last Supper, it seemed to suggest that the foot-washing issue had led to an argument about which one of them were the greatest. At least at this point in their lives, there was no way the disciples would lower themselves to such a position in front of one another. At least not while they were still busy vying for kingdom greatness. So imagine the scene with me this morning. The first disciple enters into the room and discovers that there's no foot washer. Well, suddenly for him, it's now decision time. Does he wash his own feet? Does he take off his outer garment and go get water and wash everyone else's feet? Look into his eyes. He's thinking, not me. That's not my job. I'm not a slave. I'm no foot washer. So he tries to size up where Jesus will sit, and he chooses an advantageous position right next to him. The second disciple enters and realizes that there is no foot washer and sees his friend already seated at the table. Well, he thinks, if he's not going to stoop to the level of foot washer, neither am I. And he heads towards the second best seat at the table. All the disciples do the exact same thing. They file in, walk past the water basin, and choose the best remaining seat at the table They recline, and they stick their stinky feet in each other's laps. Last, Jesus enters. Watch him. He looks at the water. He looks at the filthy feet of his disciples. The smell is apparent. And I imagine at this point, he had to be greatly disappointed. You can see it in his eyes. Three years. Sermon after sermon illustration after illustration, confrontation after confrontation. Can you imagine how he felt looking at that scene? It sure looks a lot like his ministry has been a failure. So he walks to the table and reclines, and he just sits there, I imagine, silently. Maybe someone will at least have the humility to wash the feet of their master. But no, nobody moves. Now watch him. Since there was no servant there to do it, one of the 12 should have volunteered to wash the feet of the others. But the Lord's admonition, the greatest among you shall be your servant, has thus far fallen on deaf ears. Instead of humbling themselves, the disciples were continuing their ongoing debate about which one of them were the greatest. These guys give me great hope because I see that they aren't perfect either. In fact, most of the time it seems they walk around with that deer-in-the-headlight look. Now, there is an account in Luke chapter 9 that's always made me chuckle a little bit. What has happened is a man has brought a demon-possessed child to his disciples to have it cast out. Well, they were unable to do so. So the man takes the child to Jesus, who after rebuking his disciples for their lack of faith, easily casts the demon out and then gives the child back to the father. Now, you would expect the next verse to say something like, And lo, the disciples, being greatly chagrined, crawled off into a corner to lick their humbled wounds. We could understand that, right? But no, not these cats. The next thing we hear about them, possibly just a few minutes later, is they're arguing about which one of them is actually the greatest. The greatest at what, I would like to know. (laughs) Do they have a debate about, I'm better at not casting out demons than you are? I don't get it. I don't know. Like I said, it does give me some hope this morning. Listen, Jesus knew that there was a competitive spirit among his disciples even at that time in fact within just a few minutes as I just said in Luke 22 they were fighting once again over which one of them were the greatest and so he is about to give them an unforgettable lesson in humility and by his actions he's going to rebuke their selfishness and their pride the more you think about this scene really the more profound it should become in our minds we today, just like those disciples that night, desperately need this lesson in humility because the church is largely filled with a worldly spirit of competition and criticisms as, as believers vie to see which one of them are the greatest in any church. You know, we have to be careful that we're not just growing in knowledge but also in grace and in truth. Andrew Murray wrote Humility is the only soil in which the graces root. The lack of humility is a sufficient explanation of every defect defect and failure. We read earlier Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God, and he was now going back to God soon. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Why did Jesus get up from the table? Because he knew that Almighty God had put everything under his power. How many things? All things. Because Jesus is the Lord of heaven and of earth. Because Jesus knew he had came from heaven, and he's also going to return to heaven. Because he knew that God had given him all authority on this earth. And because he also knew that the destiny of the entire world hung on his shoulders. Even then, he got up from that table, took off his outer garment. Carefully, he picks up the towel and slips it through his belt, exactly the way a slave would have done. Then he pours the water into the basin. Now look at the eyes of the disciples. What did he see, I wonder? Disbelief? Embarrassment, I'm sure? Then as Jesus began to wash the feet of his first disciple, you see something deeper in their eyes, I bet. Agony, regret, probably some tears. They must have thought, what is the matter with me? How did I miss this? My whole world revolves around me. It was bad enough I wasn't humble enough to wash my brother's feet, but I'd even, I wouldn't even wash my, my Savior's feet. How could I have not seen this? In the silence of that room, the careful, deliberate washing, I imagine, must have lasted a long time. The breathing of a kneeling king becomes heavier as the minutes pass and the, his hair falls on his forehead. When I thought about this, though, it reminded me of John the Baptist. Remember what he said? And he was preaching and saying, after me is one coming who is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to stoop down and even untie the thong of his sandals. That's quite the disparity, isn't it? John the Baptist said, I'm not good enough to touch the feet of Jesus. And his disciples at this point are saying, I'm too good to touch the feet of Jesus. Verse 6, please. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now that you will know after this. Not surprisingly, Simon Peter, never at a loss for words, was the first to protest. There is no place anywhere where you will ever find a rabbi washing the feet of his pupils. That's why they were so stunned. That's why Simon Peter says, what are you doing? You're God. You came from God. You said so. But now you're washing my feet. Why is God washing my filthy feet? What is this? This is the humility of Christ. With the uncomfortable and awkward quietness in that upper room, undoubtedly all could hear the gentle pouring of the water and the master's breathing as he moved from disciple to disciple. I wonder what he thought perhaps as he dried the feet of Thomas and Mark. Maybe he thought, these feet will be beautiful on the mountains. And when he came to Judas, these feet will soon steal away in the dark to betray me. Then he came to a pair of 13 double D's that belonged to Peter. Peter said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, you do not realize what I am doing now, but later you will understand. Remember how Jesus told his disciples before coming into Jerusalem? He said, for even the son of man came not to be seated, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In that one line, he turns everything upside down. In the vision the prophet Daniel was given to the son of man, all the nations would serve him. But Jesus is telling us here that's only half the truth and not the important half. The more astounding truth is that the eternal king above all kings serves us, and we will never be able to outserve him. So, how do we react to all this? If you're like me, you have sort of a, a, a mixed reaction. On the one hand, I am touched by such a king. On the other hand, like Peter, I'm a little bit disturbed. It would seem that if we hold to a view of God as the one who serves us, it could create an inappropriate pride. It could cause us to become self centered. It's the whole we are king kids kind of vibe. But as I've thought more about this, I've actually discovered just the opposite. A God on his knees before me humbles me and makes me strangely more God centered. You see, if my only view of God is that of a supreme king on the summit of a chain of command, a king on the top rung of the ladder, that can cause me to become more self-centered. I'm always wondering, how can I get to him? And worrying about, how am I doing? Am I making progress towards him? What can I do to make my way up to him? Now, in the name of religion, we can become preoccupied with ourselves in such things. But not so when God is kneeling before us and self-emptying love. We cannot help but be preoccupied with him. Such love knocks us off of our throne. The washing of feet being the job of a slave, Peter could not understand why Jesus would do this. Yet instead of saying, Peter, this is a beautiful type or model of Philippians chapter 2, Jesus simply says, Peter, you're not going to understand this right now, but later on, you'll get it. Did Peter? Yeah. For in 1 Peter 5.5, it's as if he draws upon this very scene as a picture of humility. Peter must have recalled that event when he wrote his first epistle and urged his readers that they must be clothed with humility. I have to wonder if Peter's mind didn't go back to this night in the upper room when he would later write. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Allow me to ask you this morning. Is the Lord speaking to you right now about some area of obedience or some challenge, some adjustment he wants to make in your life? But you're saying, I'm not going to do that until I can be sure how it's going to turn out. Husband, are you saying, I'm not going to stay with her until I see a change in her attitude? Wife, are you saying, I'm not going to submit to him until he proves himself worthy of submission? Young person, are you saying, I'm not going to obey my parents until it makes sense to me? You see, that's all backwards. You see, revelation follows obedience, not the other way around. Now, they are arguing about greatness, but no one is willing to do the smallest act of love. The Lord of glory is on his hands and knees cleaning the disciples' feet because none of them are willing to stoop that low to serve. So the Lord of glory becomes the servant. This is how Jesus showed them the full extent of his love. Regardless of that fact, at this moment, as Luke tells us, with his own disciples arguing and bickering about who's the greatest, Jesus still, with all that said, looks at his disciples and he calls them his own. So, too, as we are told, we are his own sheep in John chapter 10, his own brothers and sisters in Hebrews 2, his own bride in Ephesians 5, and his own body in 1 Corinthians 12. Aren't we glad this morning that his love is greater than ours? As we finish up today, that final thought should give us heart. Having loved his own who were in the world, he showed them the full extent of his love. You see, the servant's heart is always a heart of love. A story about Tsar Nicholas I of Russia tells something of that love. The Tsar was greatly interested in the young man because he had been friends with the young man's father. When that young man came of age, Tsar Nicholas gave him a fine position in the army. He also stationed him in a place of great responsibility at one of the great fortresses there in Russia. The young man was responsible for the money and the finances of a particular division of the army. The young man did quite well at first, but as time went along, he became quite the gambler. And before long, he had gambled his entire fortune away. So he borrowed from the treasury and also gambled that away, just a few rubles at a time. Well, one day he heard there was going to be an audit the following day. He went to the safe, took out the ledger, figured out how much money he had, then subtracted the amount that he had stolen. As he sat at the table, overwhelmed at the astronomical debt, he took out a pen and wrote, a great debt who can pay. Not willing to go through the shame that would occur the next day, he took out his revolver and covenanted with himself that at the stroke of midnight he would take his life. it was a warm and drowsy night, and the young man sat at the table, and he finally just dozed off. Now, Sergeant Nicholas had a habit of putting on a common soldier's uniform and sometimes visiting some of his outposts. On that very night, he came to that particular great fortress, and as he inspected it, he saw a light in on one of the rooms. He knocked on the door, but no one answered. He tried the latch, opened the door, and went in, and there was the young man. Lazar recognized him immediately. When he saw the note on the table and the ledgers laid out, his first impulse was to wake the young man and arrest him. But overtaken with a wave of generosity, he instead took taken the pen that had fallen out of the young man's hand and wrote one word on the paper and then tiptoed out of the room. And about an hour later, the young man woke up and reached for his revolver, realizing it was much after 12 o'clock. And his eyes fell upon this note, a great debt who can pay. He saw immediately that only one word had been written beside it, Nicholas. The young man dropped the gun, ran to the files, thumbed through some correspondence, and found the czar's signature, and he knew the note was authentic. Then the realization fully struck him. The czar had been there. He knows all my guilt, but he has undertaken my debt, and I will not have to die. That young man trusted in the czar's word, and sure enough, the needed money came. Now, the czar's love, paying the price for his guilty friend, was only a faint shadow of the atoning love of Christ. Now, Nicholas' deed was really just an easy matter for him. All he had to do was sign his name. But the atoning love of Jesus cost him everything. Now, I ask you, why do you think, how do you think that young man served Nicholas following this do you think he ever gambled or stole from him again i really doubt it that kind of love changes you and that is minuscule compared to what jesus has done for us let's remember that this morning as we take communion let us pray oh lord you are the god and the only god that stoops down i will never fully comprehend that kind of love I pray today it would do something in every heart that is represented here. Draw us to yourself and make us more like you, that we may in turn glorify you. For you and you alone are worthy of this. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, our glorious servant king. Amen. Asking John Bishop.